on my behalf also, not only because I need the prayer, but also because he mentioned a couple of things in his prayer specifically that are very directly related to a couple of my points this morning, so I appreciate that as well, even though that was probably inadvertent on his part. But uh, glad to see everybody here today. I hope that what I had to say can be helpful to you in some way. The story that Grayson just read sets up what we want to talk about. We're not going to deal directly with the healing of this man, but the result of this and the repercussions in the Jewish community and in Jesus' relationship with him is what we want to discuss. And this sort of starts an escalation, if you will, between Jew, the, Jew, excuse me, the Jews and Jesus. Because Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath day, there were several other places in the New Testament where Jesus did something like this on the Sabbath. The Jews didn't like it. And like a lot of other areas of the law of Moses, over the years the Jews had developed their own oral traditions, which placed a lot of burdens on the people that the law of Moses did not place there. The Sabbath laws were no exception to that. There were oral traditions that associated with the Sabbath that the Jews had laid on uh, on the law as well, and that's part of what is going on here. Um, at the end of this verse, though, it says, where Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. That's really the key here, because what Jesus is saying there is, you know, God never stops working on the Sabbath, his provision for us and, and what he does for us. God never stops working. And Jesus says, as he says in other places, I and my father are one. I'm going to do the work of my father. And, you know, a lot of people read verses like this or a verse that we read here in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, where he says, he, he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. A lot of people will interpret this as Jesus pulling the God card and basically saying, well, I'm, I'm Jesus, I'm the Son of Man, and therefore I can break the Sabbath if I want to. That is not what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying here is, I am God, and I understand the Sabbath, and you clearly do not understand what the Sabbath is all about. The Sabbath itself, we were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to us, made for us as a blessing by God in honor of the fact that he rested on the seventh day. But Jesus is basically telling them, I have a perfect understanding of what the Sabbath is and what it means, and you don't, and I'm not breaking the Sabbath. So that was a point of contention. And if we go back to our passage that we just read, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But this phrase that Jesus makes, where he says, my father is working until now, and I'm working, that's what really escalated this issue to a greater detail to them, because what he says here in verse 18 this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So it's gone from persecuting him to now they just flat out want to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which he wasn't, but in their eyes he was, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. And this was what really escalated this issue to the point where they wanted to kill Jesus. Because now, not only in their eyes has he broken the Sabbath, but in their eyes he's making himself equal with God, which he was doing. And so Jesus spends the next few verses talking about this, about his nature, about his power, about his authority, and how that he is equal with God, how he and his Father are one, and how, how he's showing them that, yes, that part is true. I am equal with God because I am. I'm the Son of God. And so in, in John chapter 5 and verse 30, Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's telling them, yes, I am doing the will of the Father. I'm not doing this on my own. I'm in perfect harmony with his will. I know what his will is. I know who I am in relation to him. 
And listen to verse number 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What does he mean by that? If I alone bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. Well, first of all, I think what he's saying is, if I come to you and say, no, no, this isn't, this isn't God, this is just me talking. This is my own ideas. These are my own, uh, this is my own will. He says, I can't say that because it's not true. Because it is my Father's will that I'm doing. But also what he's saying here is, I understand that for human beings, me just saying I'm the Son of God is not enough. If I just bear witness of myself, my, my testimony is not true. Anybody can stand up and say, I'm the Son of God. Is anybody here going to believe that just because I say it? No. And now Jesus says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. He's talking about God the Father there. And so what Jesus is saying is, for me, for myself, I know who I am. I have the Father's witness. I have his testimony. We're going to come back to that later. But he's saying, I don't need any other testimony than that. But I understand for you, you need more than that. You can't just take my word for it. And so we ask the question about testimony and, and testifying. This is a, a chart that very interestingly lays out the number of times that John mentions the idea of testimony or, or testifying in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, 47 times. In his epistles, 17 times. In Revelation, 13 times. For a total of 77 times that, God, that John mentions this in his writings. That's over half of the, the entire New Testament, which is 136 times. So when you consider that, the idea of testimony is important. And so we asked the question this morning, can I get a witness? And Jesus is about to give us a witness, and he's going to give us four witnesses, actually, as to who he is and whether or not he was truly the Son of God. And I like to think about this as Jesus is, is bringing this up. He's, he's talking about this in a sense that this has already been proving, been proven to you, but I'm going to show you, lay it out in very simple terms. We've uh, had a study recently talking about apologetics with some of the younger kids, and this is a passage that talks about this. Jesus was the ultimate apologist. And when Jesus says, my, you know, if, if I just testify about myself, my testimony is not true, what he's saying is, I'm going to give you evidence. I'm going to give you proof of who I am, and I'm going to show you that that proof is already been given to you. So, the first witness he brings up is John the Baptist. In John chapter 5, verse 33, he says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So John the Baptist is our first witness that Jesus is calling to the stand. So he has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist has. And Jesus says, Not that the testimony I receive is from man, Jesus isn't saying here, look, that John was only a man, and it's not really important, but this is where we're going to start. What he's saying is, this, again, this isn't the testimony that I need. This is the testimony that you need. I say these things so that you may be saved. The testimony of John was very important. And what we're going to find as we go through these witnesses this morning, that they're not all mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, they can't be. We can't just accept the testimony of John without other witnesses. And we're going to find that Jesus is building a case here. And he's showing the truth of all these witnesses that he has. John chapter 1, verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
Why did John come to bear witness that all might believe through him? The witness of John was extremely important. That's why John himself was prophesied in Scripture, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John himself was prophesied, and he was coming. He was not that light. You know, it's interesting the way Jesus phrases this. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice, and rejoice for a while in his light. But Jesus, again, he was not the light. He was just portraying the light of Christ. He was showing the light of Christ in his life. And Jesus says, for a while you were willing to rejoice. You know, the people loved the message of John the Baptist at first. Here was this, this strange man in, in the, the camel's hair and eating locusts and honey, and he was proclaiming the Messiah. And these were an oppressed people, oppressed by the Roman government. They were ready for the Messiah to come in and kick out the Romans and bring the, the kingdom of Israel back. And the Bible says that people flocked to John the Baptist to hear his message. But then when he starts talking about things like repentance and remission of sins and you need to get right with God, that's the message they didn't want to hear. That's not what the Messiah is about. The Messiah is going to restore the kingdom. But Jesus said, you sent to John. We have cases where people said, hey, let's go ask John. The first part of the Gospel of John, I know this gets confusing with all the Johns, but the people go to John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to bend down and tie his shoes. But he's coming, and he bore witness to that. You know, the, the idea of eyewitness testimony is very important. In the, it's a central nature of the gospel. God chose the foolishness of preaching to take the gospel to the lost. And eyewitness testimony is very important to that. Acts chapter 1, verse 21-22, as the apostles are replacing Judas, Peter says, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John till the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. It was very important that the apostles were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And so therefore they were able to stand up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and all throughout the rest of the book of Acts and be witnesses of Christ. Why was their witness so strong at that point? Well, just 50 days prior to the day of Pentecost, what were these guys doing? Jesus is arrested, and they're running away. Peter himself denies that he even knows Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, these men are willing to risk their lives and their reputations and their future for a lie? No, men don't do those things for a lie. They do them for the truth. And that's why the witness of the apostles and the other writers of the New Testament is so powerful for us. They literally laid their lives on the line in order for us to know the truth about Jesus. In Acts 26, verse 16, as Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, he says, rise and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose. What was the purpose Jesus appeared to him? To appoint you as a servant and a witness. You're going to take the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul. You're going to be my witness. And we should not discount eyewitness testimony that we have recorded in the Scriptures. The witness of other saints that have gone before us and experience the power that comes from obeying the gospel and following after Christ and serving in his kingdom. A few years ago at one of our area-wide meetings, Brother Mike McCorkle, he threw a picture of a man up on the screen. It was a picture of a man named Sam Potter. Some of you in this room know who Sam Potter was. Some of you don't. And that was the point of the picture. He asked for a show of hands. Raise your hand if you don't know who Sam Potter is. And half the people in the audience raised their hand. 
There were that many people who, and that's unfathomable to me because I've known Sam up to that point. I knew who Sam was. I went to church with him in Pampa many years ago. But you know, a lot of people didn't know Sam, but Mike sat there and he testified to the audience that I know who Sam Potter is. He was an evangelist in the church and so on and so forth. And the other half of the people in the audience did know who Sam Potter was. Why? Well, it was credible eyewitness testimony. And there wasn't anyone in that room who didn't believe that Sam was a real person after that, even though they had never seen him or heard him. That's the kind of testimony that these eyewitnesses were to the truth of the gospel. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This witness is a paying forward. Starting with the apostles, they witnessed to those that were in the church. Those men then witnessed, those men then witnessed, and so on and so forth down to you and I. We have to become witnesses to the gospel as well as we go out and try to reach the lost. Now, this ties in very nicely to the next witness that Jesus calls, and that is the witness of his miraculous works. John chapter 5, verse 36 says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the, works, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, what is Jesus saying here? The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Again, he's not saying... But John's just a man, it's not really that important. No, what he's doing, he's building a case here. And he's not saying that John's not important. I liken this to the, uh, the guy on the Flex Seal commercial. But, but wait, there's more. He's adding on top of what he's already talked about. The testimony of John is important, but you know what? By itself, the testimony of John the Baptist would not have been enough. Just as Jesus' own testimony, just saying, I'm the Son of God, wouldn't have been enough. How do we know that the testimony of John was important? And why was it true? Well, the Bible talks about this in John chapter 10, verse 40. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He went away again to the, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, that's really interesting to think about, isn't it? John the Baptist didn't perform miracles. He didn't perform signs. And the people knew that and understood that. But they said everything that he said about this man, about Jesus, was true. How did they know that was true? Because of the witness that Jesus is talking about here, the one that is greater than John, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing. Well, his work was to redeem the lost, but in doing that, he confirmed that by all the miracles that he performed. He healed the sick, he healed the lame, he healed the blind. He raised the dead. He walked on the water. He changed the water to wine. He calmed the storm. And those bore witness to the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. And for therefore, John said, hey, this is the guy. And the people believed that was true. Why? Because John said it? No, because Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies and he performed all those miracles. That's how we know his testimony is true. Why did Jesus go around performing miracles, healing the sick? Well, he had compassion on people. He wanted to help people. That's true. But also it was to confirm his message. And why does it have to be, again, one or the other? Why can't Jesus be compassionate while at the same time helping people? And in fact, Jesus coming to this world was nothing but one great act of compassion. And in performing these miracles, 
it proved he was the Son of God. Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The Jews would have known this passage from the book of Isaiah. And they should have read this and looked at Jesus and said, that's it. That's him. He's the son of God. But they wouldn't allow themselves to see that. You know, there are cases, specifically after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the the Jewish leaders got together and they said, okay, what are we going to do? This man is doing all these miracles. And now the Romans are going to come in and take away our place and our nation. And it never occurred to them to say, wait a minute, this man is doing many miracles. He must be the Son of God. Why? Because he didn't fit their mental picture of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They had this idea of a great military leader coming in and kicking out the Romans and restoring the nation of Israel. This man shows up and he's talking about repenting. He's talking about praying for your enemies. He's talking about you know, going the extra mile. All these weird ideas that they'd never heard of or thought of. This can't be the Messiah. Never occurred to them to believe the miracles that they saw. But Jesus says, these works bear witness of who I am. And the people looked at the message of John and said, yeah, John's message was true because we see this man doing all these things. John chapter 3, verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That was Nicodemus. He looked at the works of Jesus and said, you've got to be from God. There's no, other, there's no other explanation. No one can do the things you're doing except God is with him. And we have the witness of these miracles. Jeffrey prayed in his prayer this morning. You know, thank you for your word that reveals to us the many miracles that Jesus did to prove that he was the Son of God. That's paraphrasing. But that's exactly what Jeffrey prayed for this morning. Thank you for that. Thank you for the miracles that are recorded in your word so we can look at that and see the witness of those things in our own lives. You know, John said in John 20, verse 30 through 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did John record the miracles of Jesus? It wasn't just to tell a good story and entertain us. He said these were written so that you might believe. Do you believe in the miracles of Jesus this morning? You know, Will talked a few weeks ago about a Bible study he had with some friends, and they accused him of not believing in miracles because he doesn't believe that men perform miracles today, as the Scriptures clearly teach against. It's not that we don't believe in miracles. It's not that we don't believe miracles don't even happen today. Men just don't perform those miracles. Who can say what God does? But you know, as you consider the miracles that are recorded, do you believe Jesus did these things? Do you believe he really healed the sick and the blind and the lame? Do you believe he raised Lazarus from the dead? Do you believe he calmed the storm? Do you believe he walked on water? Do you believe those things? Because they are a witness that Jesus was sent by the Father. Which leads us to our third witness, and that is God the Father himself. John chapter 5, verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one 
whom he has sent. So let's start to unpack this just a little bit. How was God the Father a witness to Jesus Christ? How did he bear witness about him? His voice you've never seen, his form you've never seen. Well, he starts by talking about it in verse number 38, and it's an important part of what we're going to talk about. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The main witness of God the Father happens through the word of God, which we're going to talk about very shortly. But I want to consider something else about the witness of God the Father when it comes to Jesus, and that is what we find in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, at the baptism of Christ. Verse 16 says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This was not done in a corner. It was not done in a vacuum. It was not hidden from the people. John was baptizing people out in the open, and Jesus comes to him and says, I want to be baptized. John says, no, 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 I can't do that. Jesus said, yes, you can. And so John baptized him. What happened? Well, he comes up out of the water, and all of a sudden, the heavens are opened up. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God descends and lands on on Jesus like a dove. And there's this great voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there that day and see this happen? There were people there who saw it. They were witnesses. And they heard the testimony of God the Father himself saying, this is my beloved Son. As Peter, James, and John stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, the same message, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Did God the Father witness to Jesus being his son? Absolutely he did. Let's also think about what he says in verse 38 again. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus says, this is how I know you haven't received the witness of the Father, because his word's not abiding in you. Now, think of how this must have really hit them. These Jewish scholars of the Old Testament, it was the word of God. They knew it. They could quote it. But he's sitting here saying, it's not abiding in you. And I know it's not abiding in you. Why? Because you don't believe the one he sent. You don't believe I'm the one. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's John chapter 6, verse 44. You know, a lot of uh, Calvinist doctrine talks about this verse quite a bit. The Calvinist doctrine that states we're all born totally depraved and evil and we can't make any good decisions on our own. We can't come to God on our own. And because of that, God has to draw us to him by sending his spirit into our hearts and changing us and making us whatever he makes us into. Completely false doctrine. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. How does God draw us? Well, he tells us how. I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. They'll be taught by God. How are we taught by God? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You know, these Jews in this day, they weren't taught by God. They hadn't heard his word. They hadn't believed it. They knew his word. They could quote it, but they didn't know what it meant. And so therefore, they weren't drawn to Christ because they hadn't had, didn't have the word abiding in them. They didn't believe the testimony of the Father. They didn't believe the witness of the Father. 
And so therefore, Jesus said, you do not have his word abiding in you. I know that because you do not believe the one whom he sent. If they truly had the word of God abiding in them, if they truly believed the witness of the Father, then they would have been drawn to Christ like a moth to a flame. They weren't ready to hear that message, were they? They weren't ready to hear the witness of the word of God. John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What a scathing accusation. You search the scriptures. Jesus knew that they knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament frontwards and backwards. They knew it. He says, but you think you have eternal life and you don't even come close. Because there's these same scriptures that you know that bear witness of me. But you refuse to come to me. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What is the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms? It's the Old Testament. It's the scriptures. Jesus said, I told you. This was after his resurrection. He said, I told you that all these things had to be fulfilled. Now listen to what he says here. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How important are the scriptures when it comes to us believing in the Son of God. The Scripture says our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. They're very important because it is the Scriptures that testify to Jesus. Everything written in the the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, the Old Testament, it all points towards Christ. Everything written in the New Testament either tells the story of Christ or points back to the cross of Christ. The Scriptures are all about Christ. And when we think they have eternal life, but we need to understand that that's because they witness about Jesus. And that's because eternal life is found in him. So he goes on to say, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, listen to verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. So here we come full circle back to eyewitness testimony. And all these things mesh together. The eyewitness testimony of people who've seen the things about Jesus. It's corroborated by the works that Jesus did while he was on this earth. Confirmed by the testimony of the Father, both at the baptism of Christ and in the Word of God. The perfect Word of God. All those prophecies fulfilled over thousands of years. No contradictions. All coming together to show that Jesus is the Son of God. In John chapter 5, verse 41 Jesus goes on to expound on this idea further as he talks to these people. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How did he know they didn't have the love of God within them? Because he knew the word wasn't abiding in them. And because they hadn't received the message, the testimony of God the Father, because if they had, they would have received him. And he's saying, I don't receive glory from people. He's not saying that he shouldn't be glorified. We sang the song this morning to glorify Jesus, didn't we? We will glorify the King of Kings. Yes, we're supposed to glorify Jesus. In this moment, Jesus wasn't saying, I'm not looking for recognition here. I'm not, for my own self-satisfaction, needing you to say, I'm the Son of God. I'm trying to save your souls here. I'm trying to get you to see the truth of who I am and what the Scriptures are all about. But they weren't ready to hear that message. John chapter 5, verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. 
If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. The interesting thing about these Jews in this day and age, Jesus is saying, listen, I've come in my Father's name. I've proved that to you this, this, this day already. But you won't receive me. But you will receive someone else who comes in their own name, and you'll talk about Scripture, and you'll give honor to them and listen to what they have to say. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? They were perfectly content to receive glory from one another, to hear the praise from each other. You know, the Scripture says there's people who believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but because of their place in the synagogue, they refused to confess that. Why? Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's exactly the attitude we're faced here. They were, they were so caught up in their own self-righteousness and their own attitudes They couldn't see the truth. And the true glory that comes from the only God, they were just tossing aside because it didn't fit their picture of what Jesus should have been to them. Continuing on, John 5, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. What a scathing accusation. Can you imagine how this must have set with the Jews on this day. This man, Moses, who they held in such high regard, the lawgiver, right? The mediator between God and Israel. They placed all their hopes on Moses and on the law that he delivered. And Jesus says, I'm not accusing you. Moses is accusing you. You didn't listen to what he had to say. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? How could they believe when their minds were already made up about what the Messiah was? When their minds were already made up that their righteousness came by living the law of Moses and imposing all these oral traditions? How could they believe Jesus when that was where they were, where their heart was, when the word of God wasn't truly abiding in them? You know, it's real easy for us, isn't it? We can pick up the Bible and read about these things, the lens of the Scriptures, so to speak. It's so easy for us to criticize these Jews, isn't it? So easy for us to look at their attitude towards Jesus and just shake our heads. You know, we too have a decision we have to make. We have to decide because we have the same witness as they had. We have the same proof, the same evidence, the same testimony We have eyewitness testimony recorded in Scripture for us that these men saw Jesus, these men who bolted and ran when he was arrested and then later on laid down their lives and died for the gospel. We have all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone before us, the the testimony of their lives, how important the church was to them, the people who've raised us in the church or the people who've converted us from the world into the church. And we ourselves should be becoming witnesses to that as well. We have the recorded miracles of Jesus. All the works that he did. Do we believe those things? The miracles of Christ, the miracles of the apostles, which confirmed their word in the same way after his ascension into heaven. Do we believe those miracles? Do we believe they happened? We have the testimony of the Father. We have the the recording of the baptism of Jesus. We have the Scriptures filled with His promises and the prophecies that testify that Jesus was the Son of God. And we have the Word of God itself 
Thousands of years of writings of individual men coming together to form one coherent message. Jesus is the Son of God. If you'll indulge me this morning, I want to take a, just a minute to read a quote by C.S. Lewis. This isn't, a, this isn't scripture, so take it for what it is. But I, I've read part of this quote before, but I want to really think about what he says here because it encapsulates what I want to get across to you this morning, the purpose of these witnesses that we have In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There's three ways you can respond to Jesus. There are three ways you can respond to the witnesses that we've put on the stand this morning. You can either say, that guy was crazy. Or you can say, he was the biggest liar in the history of the world and I don't believe a word of it. Or you can say, I believe the witnesses. And you can fall on your feet and call him Lord and God. Those are your choices. You know, as Jesus stood before the people, there next to Pilate, there was a Jewish tradition that the Romans would release a prisoner back to the Jews. They bring this man named Barabbas, who was a convicted criminal. They set him up here. And then they set Jesus on the other side, and Pilate asked this question. Matthew 27, verse 21. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. But Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? That's the question I have to ask of myself. The question you have to ask for yourself, what will you do with Jesus who is called Christ? Will you call him a liar? Will you call him a madman? Or do you believe the testimony of the witnesses we talked about this morning? Do you believe all the eyewitness testimony we have written in the scriptures from the apostles and the other writers? Do you believe the eyewitness testimony of those that have gone before? Do you believe the recorded miracles of Jesus. Do you believe he walked on the water? Do you believe he healed the sick? Do you believe he calmed the storm? What are you going to do with that belief? Do you believe the testimony of the Father? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you believe the testimony of the Word, which proves that he's the Son of God? What are you going to do with that belief? What are you going to do with Jesus? If you have never 
as C.S. Lewis said, fallen on your knees and called him Lord and God. If you've never been obedient to the gospel, never repented of your sins and been buried with him in the waters of baptism and allowed the blood of Christ to wash away your sins, now is the day you must decide what will you do with Jesus who is called Christ. If you want to do that, if you want the prayers of this church for any reason, please have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.